The medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double-blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. East Asian medicine evolves not from the examination of dead structures, but rather from living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Geological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of East Asian medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese and other East Asian medicines. Listen into these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so 
Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Hey, before we get into today's show, I want to let y'all know about a special mini-series coming up here on Geological. In May, I'll be covering the Sports Acupuncture Alliances Conference. So mark your calendars for May 18 through 20, as I'll be bringing you several interviews each day with speakers and participants of this event. If sports acupuncture is your thing, you can get more information about this conference by visiting www.sportsacupuncturealliance.com or just pop on over to the Geological Show Notes page and click on the link. Listeners of the show can also get a discount if you want to attend this conference that's dedicated to sports acupuncture and medicine. Whether you're keeping ballerinas and basketball players flying through the air or looking to ease the aches of the weekend gardener, this mini-series from the Sports Acupuncture Alliance's conference is sure to be of help to you in your clinic. And if you're looking to connect more deeply with a community of sports acupuncturists, then plan on being in San Jose for the conference this coming May. All right now, let's get into today's show. My guest today is Jennifer Williams. Our topic today... It's going to be on using Chinese medicine for treating veterans. Jennifer has a background in doing this and a service record. She served in the military in various capacities. She currently has a PhD in counseling and recently tra- uh, got herself a transitional doctorate in Chinese medicine. She has a private practice in Green Mountain, North Carolina, way out in the mountains where she practices. And today, Our subject is treating veterans using Chinese medicine, getting some insights from someone who's been right at the uh, front lines, so to speak, both of the battles and in the treatment of veterans. Jennifer, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation here. Let's begin. Tell us a bit about your background and what drew you to Chinese medicine and acupuncture? Certainly. When I was younger, about eight years old, I recall first learning about the Chinese culture and being very intrigued. Not just intrigued, but it felt more normal than where I was growing up and my culture that surrounded me at the time. So... I kind of lost and caught up in a lot of the Chinese ideas. So it was interesting when I had children, I was not quite well when I had my children. I had full-blown eclampsia with both of them. And the second one came at 25 and a half weeks. And I say 25 and a half weeks because 
legally in the state of Colorado, doctors are not supposed to resuscitate unless the babies are 26 weeks. But my guy was a fighter. And he, he did phenomenally well. But initially, the doctors didn't have a whole lot of hope. The prognosis was not good. He was supposed to be in a wheelchair his whole life on a breathing machine. He couldn't breathe on his own. And he couldn't do a lot of things on his own. And immediately, my mind went to Chinese medical herbs. And I had studied botanical herbs, and I was fascinated with that when I was younger. And I knew I would go into some sort of medicine. I liked internal medicine. So knowing what I thought I knew about biomedicine, it was interesting to me that there was continual walls. In other words, the doctors would say, there's nothing else we can do. There's nothing else we can do. We just have to wait. And in my mind, I knew there was a plethora of things that could be done. And I immediately turned to Chinese herbs without having any formal education. I went to libraries and started looking up information where I could find it. And it led me to exactly what he needed at the time. And I was sneaking it in through my breast milk because the doctors weren't going to have anything of it. And I don't blame them. I can understand their perspective. They are responsible for this small little life. Um, Even if it didn't last, they were still responsible. So it was amazing the results that happened so quickly and uh, efficiently. So, of course, um, once he was two years old and he was fine and perfectly healthy, I thought, okay, really, I'm going to have to pursue Chinese medicine, but I didn't think that I could do it so quickly. But, you know, the universe leads us to where we need to be. Yes. Well, you know, it's amazing, too. When I'm, I'm just sitting here listening to your story, a little drop-jawed. You already practiced some Chinese medicine before you ever went to get your formal education. I did. Yeah. Yeah. And it was amazing to to realize, and it was actually, uh, my older son was taking some classes at Berkeley University um, in California. And I started going to the Berkeley Acupressure Institute. And that's when I realized this isn't really so esoteric as it seems from the outside. It's really very scientific. And so... Um, I really latched on to the what I think is a more scientific aspect of Chinese medicine just because I like science in general. Yes. You know, let's jump into that just a little bit. I love that you use the term scientific with Chinese medicine because so often the public perception is that it's not science. And I think even in our, in our own field, we might not notice that it's a kind of science. It's not a Western science, but it's a different kind of science. And I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your thoughts about how our medicine is scientific. We're often accused of it not being so. Right, yeah, because there's this concept that is very esoteric, and there are esoteric components to it. In fact, it can bleed deeply esoteric in a very meaningful way. When I use that framework in Western medicine, what I think about is how Western medicine in its own paradigm is starting to recognize the importance of spirituality in medicine and in in people. And so that's coming into mainstream on its own with 
nothing to do with Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine. It's just developing naturally. And I think that there's a lot of gaps in Western medicine because this kind of concept is is newer to them. And I think it was avoided because it wasn't scientific. But I think they're seeing the importance of it. So now we can go to Chinese medicine and go, oh, well, we already have this model. And we can help you fill the gaps using Chinese medicine. And not that it has to be exclusive, but it can help that development in in Western medicine. Um, But I think that, you know, eventually the the two converge. And I think we see this in physics and in other areas of science that, uh, you know, if we look at string theory, we start to realize that, you know, these molecules don't behave like we expect them to behave. And there's some uh, very unknowns. But when the biophysicists start really looking closely at, okay, how is it that all this information can transfer so quickly? Um, they, they have to kind of open up their, their own minds and they, they can't explain everything scientifically. But I think, I think eventually that scientific ideology and what we consider esoteric at the moment will converge in all models. Yeah become a little less materialistic as it's been true yeah yeah so you basically saved your son's life with breast milk that was infused with herbs you you took the herbs yourself no i'm glad that you asked for that clarification what i was doing was decocting the Mm -hmm. herbs and i was actually adding it to the breast milk so it would come in looking orange i was being very aggressive with this. And the first herb I used was actually not a Chinese medical herb. It was actually rooibos, which comes from South Africa, which is high in calcium, magnesium, and very calming for the stomach. My son could not tolerate any milk of any kind. They tried a plethora of things. So that was the first challenge. And adding just the rooibos into my breast milk directly, they called it liquid gold. And how did I get away with it, you might ask? Yeah, I'm curious about that, yeah. Yeah, Um, it was interesting because a quick little story. My brother-in-law was juicing carrots so intensely that his skin started turning turning orange. So I used that idea, and I said, oh, I've just been juicing carrots, and this is what's happened. I have no idea. And they bought it. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) I thought of a lie, and I thought it up quick, yeah. Yeah, well, we do what we need to do in the moment. Yeah, yeah, but it worked. And yeah, and from that, um, I just targeted one challenge at a time. He was going blind in one eye, for instance. He had gastro reflux, kidney reflux, all these challenges that prevented him from coming home. Um, and quality of life is really where I focused. And I was also coming in every day and doing what I now know as infant tui na. At the time, I did not realize what it was, although a lot of the books I was reading said, oh, you know, with children, you need to rub their feet because that's the area of the kidney and development. And at the time, I didn't have a context for it, but I had a lot of faith. Yeah, well, something in you, something was guiding you on this. How? So then how did you find your way to acupuncture school? And I'm curious, was... The acupuncture school before or after your military service? It was after. 
I joined the military when I was in college to help my cousin through. So I started the, the military very young, but I enjoyed it. There were so many opportunities uh, things I could learn that I wouldn't have gotten in college. In fact, I was frustrated in college because I wanted to learn computer science. I wanted to take my, I was a, an art major, and I was ready to get into graphic art at a much higher, deeper level. And I was like, oh, no, you have to wait, you have to wait. And I thought, wow, I'm just spending my own money, spinning my wheel. So being in the military, suddenly I was, you know, the world was my oyster. I could really take a so many different classes and learning experiences, journalism and writing and develop technical writing. So um, I thought it was a, a great experience, but I recognized that the military had a huge deficiency in in medicine. And, and that was that, you know, they, there were so many, there's so many other ways these soldiers could be ready on so many levels. And, you know, right, wrong or indifferent, our military is very important. Um, it's really, you know, and I, I see the military as a global peacekeeping mission. I, I try to look at that positive aspect. And there's corruptions in all areas. And I don't think that we've made the best use of our military, but that's a whole political issue. My thought is, you know, physically and mentally, we, we can be better prepared. And I think that's where Chinese medicine has not stepped in. But, you know, maybe 10 years from now, we'll see it. Because as a lot of this conversation will go, is right now, the doors have opened up for us to help veterans, which is, of course, where we are in our medicine. We tend to see people who are operating at 50% or less, but really the medicine is designed for prevention. So you see a possibility in the future that Chinese medicine would be much more integrated into the military uh, on an everyday basis? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Especially when we're talking about diet. And so, and I'll go back to your question about actually getting into acupuncture school. But, you know, as a, as a side note, when I was in the military, I would go in and help with the kitchen. I would crack open the eggs and cut the vegetables and we'd prepare these meals. Now everything comes in freeze-dried bags. Uh, the food quality is so low. The nutrient level is so low. And, and so one thought is, well, you know, that's a big obstacle for healing when there's no nutrients for, for the blood. And there's, uh, AFES kind of owns what goes into the military bases. In other words, you know, the, the, the military, we've got the Veterans Affairs, and then, of course, you know, each branch of the military has their own major organizations, but Installation Management Command controls what's going on in all the bases. And AFES, which is a private industry, has control of most of the food that's coming in. And I've seen generals go almost to court with AFES trying to get something like Chipotle's into the bases. AFES won't have it. And like I've said many times to military leadership, until our soldiers and veterans' health become more important than AFES profits, we're going to continue seeing these health crises in our soldiers. I suspect this is something, having been on the inside, so to speak, and, and being more connected to the military and, and knowing the ins and outs of it, 
These are things you see that us civilians, we would really have no clue about. It doesn't show up on the news. It doesn't show up, you know, in investigative journalism or anything, at least that I know of, about, uh, you know, how our soldiers are fed and, and cared for that way. True. And I haven't thought about that, but you're right. And it is conversations we've started having on the inside. So I am actually on faculty at Walter Reed, and I teach pain skills to um, during conferences. And this is where the VA leadership, Army, Navy, Air Force come in, and they learn different aspects of how can we do better pain management. And I've been trying to teach them about herbs in the relationship of nutrition and really opening up this door. And last year, I was working with an officer who was actually in charge of nutrition for the Navy. And we had a, a long, open conversation about that because this is something that the Navy has recognized and the Navy is working on. And so I think that there's an awareness and there are steps being taken uh, to, to rectify it. But, you know, the Navy doesn't have that same challenge as as the Army when it comes to foods. Because if you ever go to a Navy base, you'll find there's actually some decent, healthy choices on there. But in most Army bases, there are not. And what's the reason for that? This may, this may seem just a little off topic, but it's kind of interesting. Why would those be different? Why has the Navy got better chow? The, the Navy, because the Navy has recognized the, the problem with AFES. And again, this is the Army Air Force exchange. And the Army Air Force is Army Air Force, not Navy. So it's the Army Air Force exchange system, which is a private organization that continually challenges when Installation Management Command leadership wants to open the doors to healthier options. So Chipotle's was one of those examples. So we were lucky to, that you know Starbucks was able to come in, and not that Starbucks is a healthy choice, but that's probably the healthiest option they have besides the commissary. And the commissary does have sushi, but it's a pretty horrible pseudo-sushi deliverance that's still very, very expensive. And one argument that AFES has is, well, the soldiers are not going to pay $10 for something better. And I'm like, well, first of all, if you go to Chipotle's, it's more like $6. And second of all, yeah, they're paying $10 for some pretty crappy concept of, of sushi. And it's there's no raw, healthy fish in there for the most part. It's um, overcooked and old, and it does not taste very good at all. Mm -hmm. But uh, people will pay the money for it because they're desperate for something that's better quality. Right. So, so there's some real issues on the inside um, yeah. in, in terms of basic nutrition. Oh, yes. Yeah. And again, even working in the hospital, I worked in the hospital on Fort Bragg for two years. And the cafeteria, I mean, I think they're doing the best they can. It all comes down to, to, to budget and money. And so, again, you know, there were no fresh eggs. There were no, um, I mean, maybe there were some. There were some hard-boiled eggs. But all of the salad bar items, everything would come into a plastic bag. And the stuff was just pre-done, pre-cooked. There, there wasn't anything that was prepared fresh. Everything came, you know, frozen or in a bag. And it was cheap. And I think it, people just hasn't, haven't realized that you pay now or you pay later. 
And I think that our soldiers have significantly paid. But there is no limitation of alcohol and cigarettes. Uh, in fact, the barracks, there are vending machines for beer and cigarettes right there in the barracks. So you have these young kids coming in. And, and here's something that, that might get you thinking a little bit. So you have these young children who come in and maybe they've grown up with a semi-healthy lifestyle. Let's, you know, um, and they'll come in and they're young and vulnerable and under a lot of stress now because it's a very stressful environment. And now they have right outside of the door, alcohol and, and cigarettes and a vending machine, which I think is ridiculous, but not just that, but in the work environment, um, if they, if they don't smoke, then they don't get a break. So in other words, if you're working with five people and you're all working on the same mission and three of them are out smoking, you know, um, every every hour they leave for 15 minutes, then you're the one stuck doing the work. You don't get a break. And I have to wonder to what extent that's an antique design, you know, back when, you know, Big Tobacco was trying to encourage use. And we know they did. And that's, you know, I'm not faulting anything, but it seems interesting that that concept is still in place you you generally don't get to take a break unless you're a smoker you know this is it's interesting you should bring that up i i don't treat a lot of people who want to stop smoking mostly because i found most people don't really want to stop smoking they want acupuncture to make them stop smoking but in the work that i have done it i what i've noticed is smoking has some really positive side effects or, or so I shouldn't say side effects, but positive benefits for the smoker. And one of them is five minutes of don't mess with me right now. Yeah. This is not to be underestimated. If you don't have that ability to take a break without having to have a cigarette in your hand, then you don't get your breaks. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing from you is there's all kinds of things that are sort of structural in the military at this point that lead people to have certain vulnerabilities in nutrition, you know, maybe some lifestyle sorts of things. At the same time, the military is, is on the cutting edge. It's, I mean, it's brought acupuncture into some of the veterans associations, right? I mean, there's jobs for people to do acupuncture. You have a background in Chinese medicine and, and a background with the military. And what I'm hearing from you are some really optimistic words about how this is going to get integrated into military, maybe before it gets integrated into our regular everyday life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting because, again, as, as a veteran, I wanted to step in and help. The, the VA actually contacted me when I had a private practice in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and said, hey, can you come over here and work? And then the Army had a job opening about the same time, which was kind of exciting, and you know, who, who would have known? But the Army said, yeah, but over here, you can do herbs. And I was able to do a little bit with herbs, but not as much as I, I was hoping. And so from an optimistic standpoint, here's this opportunity. They're now hiring licensed acupuncturists to work in the, uh, the VA and the Navy and the Army and the Air Force, and all this is ramping up to work in integrated pain management clinics. So the first thing we notice is, okay, this is all related to pain. 
Um, they haven't opened it up in other areas at, at that time, and that's starting to, to, to maybe change. What's happening in the background, what was happening in the background was there's a, a civilian physician who saw an opportunity and a gap. So if you're going to hire a licensed acupuncturist, who's going to monitor this? You know, what, what medical profession is going to monitor what we're doing or try to understand what we're doing? And so this individual came up with this military um, or medical acupuncture training, which I think was a great idea. But unfortunately, this individual doesn't have an actual accredited Chinese medical training background. And the translation of what was taught was not only quite different, but quite limited. And it resulted in these medical acupuncturists being what pretty much looks like a, a technician at best. So they walk out of this, what's supposed to be 300 hours of training, doing a handful of protocols for pain, which don't make a whole lot of logical sense from either a Chinese medical standpoint or a biomedical standpoint. And, and they think that they're getting a better education than a licensed acupuncturist, but they don't know what they don't know. And they've got this incredible medical background. What they learned about Chinese medicine is A, mostly incorrect, and, and B, um, not even 10%. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the way they learn to diagnose is to ask the person, what color are they thinking of? What color are you thinking of right now? Are you thinking of the color blue? Oh, well, then you have a propondency towards a kidney issue. And I'm sure that your mouth is hanging open right now. Um, I'm not kidding. And so what happened was we came along, we licensed acupuncturist and started doing our own thing. And people wanted to see us. They didn't want to see them. We were making these incredible strides with people in so many areas of life. And the medical acupuncturist felt very offended and hurt and they wanted us gone. And um, they got rid of the licensed acupuncturists that were working for the Army or for the Navy and the Air Force. I think they all pretty much got terminated and the VA. And so the VA was trying to hire me, but it couldn't because suddenly they weren't allowed to privilege licensed acupuncturists. And that's what happened with the, uh, the Army. And so I did go into the Army not knowing what was going on in the background. And this is something that people don't understand that's, that's happening. And the licensed acupuncturists that remaining that weren't driven out through a lot of harassment and toxic work environment, the ones that remained were actually downgraded to a technician uh, because people, the licensed acupuncturists weren't really on board with doing what they had learned, their handful of things, because A, it doesn't really work, and, and B, it just has a limited scope, and, and they don't learn differential diagnosis. So, oh, you have back pain? Here's the treatment for back pain. It's all the same. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that you and I both know that, you know, sometimes back pain can be from a digestive problem. I mean, it, or a shoulder pain can be because you've got a gallbladder attack. And, and it's just amazing that all that is just kind of left out of the mix. But in any event, uh, yeah, the, the, life, the handful that are left are now downgraded. To, uh, to technicians, they lost four grades of pay. And basically the, the medical acupuncturists are supposed to get credit for what they're doing, although that's not really happening yet. But, so that's the, that's the bad news. The good news is the VA 
started recognizing and a lot of the higher leadership said, whoa, this medical acupuncture isn't really the acupuncture that I get when I go to my licensed acupuncturist on the side and I'm paying for it. Um, what's going on? And the VA recognized that when they were sending the veterans out for contracted care, that if they were seeing like a physical therapist or a physician or a chiropractor who didn't have the board certification or the state licensure, like, like, like we do as licensed acupuncturists, the results just weren't the same. And they, the VA stopped that a couple of years ago. They said, yeah, no more. If we're going to source this out, it's only going to be to a licensed acupuncturist and the demand for our services has increased increased exponentially to to the point where um, there are just so many opportunities for contracted care. But I think what's happening is there is the think tank of people going, okay, uh, we're going to go ahead and have to hire licensed acupuncturists and get them privileged again like we used to and, you know, and have them on board, not only for pain, but for other areas, because we can work in fertility, we can work in internal medicine, you know, we, we can turn breech babies. I did this actually for one of the anesthesiologists who said, yeah, I really don't want the manual turning of my baby, but I really don't want to have a C-section. Can you help me? And, uh, and I did right through our stockings. I mean, just, you know, quickly and we mm-hmm. couldn't use mox in the hospital. So they use heat lamps on, on both of her feet on the UB 67 and really stimulated and, um, you know, and sure enough that baby turned and she had a natural delivery. So there became an interest for the anesthesiologist to learn how to do this as opposed to the manual turning of the baby. I'll bet that really got her attention, didn't it? It it really got, yeah. And, and, and so actually there, the person who was leading the anesthesiology department, said, can you develop training on this? Can we do this? And I thought, well, why not? It's just, you know, one point it's, you know, it makes sense. It's, you know, it's a limited scope, right? It's, it's safe. It's safe. And do you know, of course, politics, uh, got in the way and that's, that's the big problem. Politics always gets in the way. And the, the, the politics that got in the way were the medical acupuncturists going, yeah, we, we don't, A, we never learned this, and, and B, you're making us look bad again, so you need to stop that. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do Channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page 
at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Well, you know, it, one of the things about being an acupuncturist that I really like is that I don't have to follow protocols. In fact, protocols don't really make sense to me. No, they don't. And, and, and so much of, of our current Western medicine is very much in love with protocols. And of course, many systems, be it the military or hospitals or insurance companies, protocols are, you know, they like protocols, I think, because they're easy to understand, they're easy to teach, and you can have a sort of standard of care based on them. It may or may not be effective, but they're easy to institutionalize, whereas the handcrafted medicine that we do that's a whole different story. You're right. And that's one of the challenges that we have in the in the military right now. So um, there's a lot of money out there, you know, uh, being spent on the, the medical acupuncture aspect and these protocols, which aren't uh, necessarily a good value. And I'll, I'll make a, a comparison. So the NADA, the National Acupuncture Detox Association, I think is a great protocol. I think that's an example of a, of a good protocol. Why? Because it's not really limited to us as, as acupuncturists. We can use it and it's, and it's great, but it also allows counselors to, to learn that and use it in the office in that very limited scope. And there are literally over a thousand pieces of information on PubMed on the NADA approach. So we know that it's effective. And we understand both what's happening from a Chinese medical standpoint and actually from a biomedical standpoint, there's research out there that shows when the lung point of the ear is stimulated that there's an effect through the vagus nerve that satisfies the nicotine receptors. So, and, and this is a neurological research. And so we can really start to identify how this is working on many levels, and we, there's plenty of randomized clinical trials that show the efficacy. Now, if we take that model and then compare it to battlefield acupuncture, which kind of looks like the same idea of NADA, it's five points, it also uses the Shenman point on the ear. When we look up the research on PubMed, it doesn't exist. There's a handful of articles about it, and it's really just the, the handful of people and, and actually, Helms, who does the medical acupuncture for the military, um, and Niemzow, the one who developed this battlefield acupuncture, you know, they, they kind of work in cahoots together. And the VA, there's um, an organization that seems official, but it's not really official. It's a VA organization that does a lot of uh, research, and it kind of manages these pockets of money that that are, are going out, um, which I find very interesting. And um, our medical acupuncturists are, are kind of entwined in there as well in this organization. But this they, they, they spent a half a million dollars of our tax dollars to train people within the VA. I'm talking 26,000, and that's on their website. And so uh, DV SIPM, actually, is, the, is their acronym. And so... Well, including that 26,000 people that they've trained to do this battlefield acupuncture, we're talking clerks, we're talking people who 
really have no background, no cleavial technique, no concept of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's a simple protocol. It's a simple protocol. But with teaching people to this quickly and in a... so that the translation wasn't very well. So when you see it executed by uh, an allied practitioner or um, you know a, a nurse, or I actually saw what a pharmacologist had had done, it, the points are totally off, and they start getting very very creative. Well, I think I'll just look at the the chart, and I think I'll go over here and and hit this other point instead. And so the the overarching points I'm making is that in our medical model, it's very focused on evidence base and efficacy. So battle foot acupuncture, there is no evidence base that it's working. So we basically just used our military as kind of a test ground for something that is was never really understood. And if you look at Niemzow, who developed this, there was one article he wrote and he said about the, the mechanisms of how this is working. The paragraph is maybe three or four lines and something to the effect of, well, the best I can figure is these areas are indicated when there's chronic pain, these areas of the brain. So therefore, we're going to use a single gyrus and we're going to, you know, use it. So the guy just kind of uh, pulled this out of his hat and threw it out there and can't even explain why or why it, it, it may not work. So it's interesting is one of the things the military is looking at is glial cells, which uh, you know, I won't go down a whole pathway of that, but basically these are neurological cells that we thought were, were inert initially, and now we see them involved when there's chronic pain. So the problem is we now understand that in the prefrontal cortex, when, when we meditate, when we relax, we can increase the activity in there, which decreases pain. So Niemzow apparently used some, um, at Andrews Air Force Base, he used the functional MRI equipment to test his own protocol. And he said, oh, so in the prefrontal cortex, when I use a cingulate gyrus point, it calms everything down. Well, we know now that when there's chronic pain and a dysregulation of pain, that relaxing that area actually increases pain. So basically he proved that using the Battlefield acupuncture for chronic pain, especially when there's the, the, P, the background of PTSD and stress involved, it's one of the worst things we can do. And Battlefield acupuncture in itself, when you kind of look at it from a Chinese medical open-minded standpoint, it's like, oh, it's not a bad idea. And I, I did see it working for people with chronic pain, with a, not chronic pain, with acute pain. But now they want to use it for everything. Okay. So let me just make sure I'm following this. Okay. Using that singular gyrase point, it sounds like it has an effect on the glial cells in the, in the, in the prefrontal cortex. This might be more useful for acute pain but not so helpful for chronic pain. Right, yeah. And I think I think for acute pain, it works fine. But what they're really using it for is chronic pain, especially when there's stress. And we know that that model fits well with NADA. But with the battlefield acupuncture, the, the, the one point we know, according to Niemzow's research, calms down 
that area and the in the prefrontal cortex and in turn actually increases pain. And so what we find now, uh, even be before I figure this out, and the reason I was trying to figure this out is because soldiers or veterans who have chronic pain and stress, which usually goes hand in hand, want to rip these things out. They hate it. It's, it's torturous for them. They can't stand it. And so here we are spending so much money, half a million dollars, to train people on something that we never looked at to see if it A, made sense, or B, was even effective. You know, uh, there was no evidence base for, for using this. And now we have evidence to show that this was really, this is really a bad idea. Well, it's helpful to have evidence. And, you know, so often this is the way knowledge and understanding moves forward is, you know, we, something seems like a good idea. We, well, we often have lots of good ideas. This seems like a good idea. And then you try it and you look at the results and you go, might need to modify this. Yeah. You well, know? so so then you have to ask yourself, why didn't we just use NADA? We know it works. We know it's effective. It wasn't going to cost anything to teach this to nurses and other allied professionals, right? And so then, you know, you, you so, so basically you start to wonder, okay, why has something that we know can be so largely effective in so many areas of medicine become limited to, to a handful of people just trying to make money off of it and deliver something that's not so effective? And so that's the unfortunate thing that's happening in the background. That's, that's a, a struggle that most people aren't aware of. You know, I, I think eventually once that's more elucidated and illuminated, that it'll, it'll give way to what we're doing in this medicine and start really then going into to, to deeper areas of medicine. And I can really see Chinese medicine changing our standard of care because a lot of times, well, you know, it's a battlefield acupuncture isn't, isn't evidence-based, but it's a standard of care. You're coming in, you have pain, Everyone's busy. They they can't help you, so they do the battlefield acupuncture. Right. Well, standards of care. Um, I mean, I see patients all the time in my clinic that have either not been helped by the standard of care or injured by the standard of care from Western True. medicine. True. But because it's the standard of care, well, you know, it's the best we got. What are you going to do? Yeah. So if we look at a common problem we have with the, the veterans in the military and even in the civilian population, are, is neurological pain. And let's take uh, an example of Parkinson's. And Parkinson's is really just a diagnosis of, oh, I've been trembling for two years, therefore you have, you're diagnosed with Parkinson's. Well, you, I, that's, isn't it a little more complicated than that? It's like trembling for two years and respond to certain drugs. Ah, I'm glad you said that. The drugs are all experimental. There is no drugs that actually... Yeah, there's there's herbs we where well, there's uh, herbs there's medicines we give a standard of care, but they're more exper ex experimental. There's nothing. I mean, we take an aspirin, we know it's going to work, but there is no drug that actually can treat Parkinson's. Well, don't they control it with L-dopa, or or I should say, attempt to control it. Well, attempt, and that's and that's the point. And when that doesn't work, they try something else. They try something else. Did you know that Parkinson's is one of the most lucrative diagnoses? No, I didn't. Yes, it is. And so, and, and I'm not faulting anyone. I'm just, I'm looking at, there's, there's a standard of care, there's that model. 
And it's an easy one to compare because, you know, we can look at cases of like allodynia and the person has hypersensitivity because that neurological condition has continued on for so long and none of these drugs are working. And so then we can go to Chinese medicine and go, oh, okay, well, we kind of understand what's happening from a biomedical perspective, which I think for me really helps me because then I can go, okay, well, what do we see it? We see it as B syndrome. We see this external pain condition and the swelling and the swelling harassing the nerves. And, you know, when we start applying a Chinese medical approach to this, we can get results very quickly using scalp acupuncture, electric acupuncture, using herbs, using so much in our arsenal. And Western medicine's over here kind of spinning their wheels. And so I'm hoping that eventually through case studies, we can go, oh, okay, well, here's the biomedical understanding. Here's the Chinese medical understanding. And we can use both models to build a different standard of care. Yeah. You, you mentioned Parkinson's. Are you treating Parkinson's? Um, I treat a lot of neurological condi conditions, but I, I treat Parkinson's um, quite effectively. Um, but it's because I, I've developed kind of understanding of what, what's happening. And that's only because I've had to look at pain um, from both a biomedical and a Chinese medical perspective. I think that looking at both um, both mechanisms have helped to develop a, a, a way to not only treat, but a way to communicate to the to the Western counterparts. Like, oh, okay, well, if you start considering the fact that most Parkinson's also has an internal condition, which is, you know, um, because... Th what we know in Chinese medicine is Parkinson's is usually an external and internal condition. It's not just limited to the exterior. Can you right? give us a, yeah? Can you give us an example, maybe a case study that illustrates this? Well, actually, you know, one of the things we're probably going to talk about in this is, you know, how how do we address pain in general with these soldiers? It's so complicated, and so with any kind of pain. It's not just pain. There's comorbidities. There's trouble sleeping. There's depression. There's an anxiety. Um, and there's digestive issues. And you and, mentioned earlier on nutrition and pain. I remember early on in the interview, you mentioned the words nutrition and pain, which yeah. really rang a bell for me because yeah, it's usually not talked about. And yet I, I know in my practice, Sometimes people come in, they're eating incredibly inflammatory diets. Yes. And then oh, yeah. downing anti-inflammatories by the handful in an attempt to control whatever kind of pain they've got going on. Yeah. And we have to remind our patients that turmeric comes in a couple forms. It comes in the root and the tuber. One's cooling, one's warming. And by the way, if you don't add pepperine to that, it's not going to serve as the anti-inflammatory. It's just going to be a spice for your food. That's right. Or a little bit of oil can be helpful too. Yeah, 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 to help to help break it down, but yeah, and in terms of nutrition, because there's two aspects, um, and we know from even a biomedical standpoint, there's a lot of research that says, ah, you know, if a person has had surgery or trauma, um, and we'll just focus on the trauma, 
So they know now they know now that trauma requires a lot of nutrients to heal because the blood has to get healed. And we know from a Chinese medical standpoint, well, of course, we need good blood to circulate the body. But the other thing that you know we we haven't introduced yet to the biomedical world is it's not just blood, it's fluids. Um, most people have a lot of pathogenic fluids, but not a lot of good fluids. So when we're talking like neurological conditions and tremors and, um, you know, stroke, when we get to the point that someone is stroking out, what happens? They froth at the mouth. Why? Because their body can't, can't reabsorb the pathogenic fluid. And so when I say external and internal, I'm talking about usually like an internal dryness. I mean to say, um, you know, so if, uh, how do I, um, so if there's a patient that comes in and there's a lot of swelling and edema and pain and neuropathy, um, one of the first things we think of to do from a scientific level is go, oh yeah, we need to give them herbs and purge out that edema and purge out that phlegm and purge it out. But actually, um, if we kind of step back and go to the, to the classics, like, um, you know, Lee Don Juan, I mean, what did he teach us in the earth school that a lot of emotional issues will have an effect on digestion. So yeah, there's always kind of this emotional thing going on. And again, if you look at pain comorbidities, all that's there, depression, anxiety. Um, so, uh, and digestive, you'll always see the digestive disorders. So when someone doesn't have enough um, fluids, they're highly sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, kind you of know, an yin deficiency. It, well, it is yin deficiency. And so, yeah, there's this external, exactly, an external um, fullness in, in the exterior and internal deficiency. And that's what our neurological cases are. And that's all Shan Han Lun. The Shan Han Lun taught us that a long time ago. And that's why the Shanhan Lun is all basically um, Guajertong, like a variation of uh, Guajertong. Uh, that's the balanced. And and if you have a little more excess on the exterior, you know, then you're going to add a little bit more uh, clearing herbs. If you're going to have more internal issue, then you're going to have more engendering herbs, more the Ren Shen. And so... Um, so one of the first things you want to do with anyone like with a neurological condition is you want to start with the inside. You want to start bolstering, not only fixing the digestion like right away quickly, but you also want to develop bodily fluids because without that, the body doesn't have an exit. And and that's what a lot of, and, and that's what we need to explain in, in Western medicine terms. And this is why the nutrition becomes so important. Um, because when you start building up the fluids, which is what Renshin does, which is what our ginseng does, and even Dodzal to a point, and I'm not talking, you know, Romania and, you know, things are a little bit harder to break down, just kind of start with the the EE the Ren and the Renshin and the, the Dodzal and, and build up that fluid. And then the body is actually going to start eliminating a lot of this swelling and, and inflammation. Yeah, this fluid physiology and pathology thing shows up in so many places. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why we can see people 
that have yin deficiency, uh, yin deficiency and yet a, a real excess of fluids. I'm wondering, are you familiar with Steve Clavey's? It's really a, kind of a modern classic, uh, Fluid Physiology and Pathology in Chinese Medicine. Yes, I have that book. You do have that book. So is that where you got your ideas for this kind of work, uh, working with fluids in this way? No, I got my ideas from just observing people. I work with a lot of neurological conditions and a lot of autoimmune. And I was trying to understand Sjogren's a little bit better. And in developing that model in my mind to understand mechanisms, I went back to this idea of uh, physiology of, uh, or the pathology of fluids and the indeficiency. Got it. And you've been able to take that and use it in all kinds of places here, treating pain. Correct. Yes. Because another population we see with pain, of course, is fibromyalgia and a lot of the autoimmune. And, and again, just trying to figure that out. But, you know, it turns out we have so many different names in Western medicine of these syndromes. But when we break it down in Chinese medicine, the same things overlap over and over again. And that's this deficiency of good fluids, excess of pathological fluids, and uh, generally blood not moving, phlegm, that sort of thing, especially in pain. We know that just things are not articulating. Where there's no free flow, there's pain. And so we have this, this blockage of things not moving correctly, and we have this deficiency, and we have these excesses. And usually the deficiencies are in the internal, and the excesses are on the external. Although one could argue that B syndrome is a mechanism in which the fluid deficiency is on the exterior, therefore it allowed the exogenous evil to come in. Yeah, and you know, as you were mentioning, uh, the Shanghan Lun is often a great source for looking at these kinds of things. Correct. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's what the whole book is about. Is really about the external internal. I think that's how I see it now. Is these external internal conditions and most of the herbs or the herb formulas are designed to harmonize the interior and exterior and the internal conditions. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www 
bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, so folks, get out there and study your Shanghai Lun. I, <laughs> <laughs> I want to um, shift this a little bit. There's so much we can talk about here. I mean, we could easily go for hours, but unfortunately, we don't have hours. What I want to come back to here for the moment is those of us that would like to help veterans and don't have the wealth of experience that you have. I mean, how can we even, I mean, I think for myself, and I have had veterans come in from time to time, I recognize that their experience is so very, very different from mine. Sometimes I don't even know where to begin talking with them. Yeah, I'm glad that you asked. There is a project done under the auspices of Area Health Education Center through the VA. And if one Googles Area Health Education Center or AHEC Veteran Project slides, there is a deck of slides that is free for anyone to use for themselves or the community and it's kind of a head start to another free offering that the VA has and basically this is focusing on military culture basic training and actually what the VA has to offer freely is this military culture core competencies for healthcare professionals there are four modules all of this training is free not only is this helpful to start to understand the culture the community the climate how PTSD is viewed in this population and how this protected population is their the healthcare is evolving in terms of not just soldiers and veterans but also family members and then one can say, oh, I've taken these classes. And so then, you know, one is, one is more prepared. So I think that more VA positions and more Army and Air Force, I think those positions are going to start to open up. And having these free core competency courses, I think, is definitely a boon for those people who not only want to work with the veteran and soldier population now, but who would like to work in a military treatment facility. Right. So for, for those of us that just would like to educate ourselves a little more, understand the culture more, we can use these resources. And for those who might actually be looking for a job uh, treating veterans and, and hopefully what will be you know, more of a, an industry that would hire us, it would be important to be competent in these skills. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, well, maybe it's not beyond that, but but for those who are just getting started with this, can you give us just a few pointers, some things to think about when a veteran's coming in and looking for help from us? What are some things that, two or three things that we would want to be cognizant of from the outset? Yeah, and a lot of that goes back to that population and that culture. That population and that culture is very centered on military community and honor and being there for each other. And I think that a lot of times when a veteran comes in and the 
provider does not have a military background, there's a little bit of a, of a wall that's put up. But I think if the practitioner can say, yeah, you know, I know that I'm not familiar with their, your culture, but I respect this idea of honor and brothership and, you know, and being there. And, you know, and, and I think that small conversation can open the door. So again, that's why I like those slides from that, that AHEC, because it really talks about that culture and, and a way in. And, you know, there's barriers in communication. We know this, and we know those, those barriers can create so many other challenges. So I think opening the door in that conversation by just saying, yeah, you know, sir, I'm so glad. Thank you for uh, being a veteran and being there for our country. And I haven't done that, but I respect where you're coming from. And I might not be familiar with the culture, but you know, this is, this is what I started to learn. And it's almost like if you've ever visited a foreign country and you've tried speaking the language, even if it's just a few words and you might have it all wrong, hua, you know, things like that. And, or just a question, you know, where does hua come from? You know, or, you know, where does this idea of, you know, X and so and, oh, I saw this on on TV, you know, can you explain what this might mean? And it's a way to get them to talk about something they're familiar with. And it also shows a real interest on the provider side. Yeah. Well, I will make sure that there are link direct links to these on the show notes page. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, just know you can head over to geological.com. Everything you need is on the show notes page. So we don't we don't have to go into all the details and and you know web addresses here because I'll have it all in one handy place for you. Great. Jennifer, what about in terms of acupuncture? For pain and for the veterans? For pain, yeah, for pain. Yeah, let's start with pain. Okay. Yeah. Why? Because a lot of the veterans that will be sent to you will be for, for pain. And whether they're sent for anxiety and PTSD, which we're seeing now, which is very exciting, you know, pain is usually always in the background. So I would say a really great, that's a really great question for a couple of reasons. The soldiers, the way we fight military campaigns is changing and we're sending in more special forces and special operations and civil affairs. And they all learn how to jump out of airplanes. And so not necessarily your typical 82nd Airborne people, but all these people are, are jumping. They're jumping out of airplanes. Yeah. I mean, how many people do you meet that's like, yeah, I go to work by jumping out of an airplane? Right. Well, you know, and I had to really comb the Chinese medical text to start understanding what I was seeing in this population. So it's not only jumping out of airplanes, it's jumping out of vehicles and just hitting the ground over and over again. And so what the Chinese call this, or the Chinese medical theory, is blood leaving the vessels. And what this looks like is the sublingual veins start to bow out. So when I look under someone's tongue, um, and not when the tongue is you know, kind of stretched or, or, or taunt, but just to relax looking under the tongue, the sublingual veins would normally be vertical and, you know, should be kind of thin, thinner than, than yarn. 
But when it's thick like urine, okay, we can start to think, okay, this is blood stasis or depression, got it. But when that, instead of being vertical, starts to bow out laterally, then that usually happens when someone's, you know, gained weight or been pregnant. But when it really bows out, we can start thinking, oh, um, and, and what looks like the vessel used to be full of blood is now a thick vessel, but maybe the blood's not there. Classic um, blood leaving the vessels. And this is what we see when people are pounding the ground, hitting the ground, whether they're running or jumping out of a plane or jumping out of a, a vehicle. And in that case, those people usually end up having issues with their low back spasming. And physiologically, I think, huh, maybe I don't want to do a Hua Chu Jiaoji or any points down in those muscles because I'm trying to move something that just isn't there, which is probably why they're having cramps. So in that case... Because I, they're blood deficient. Because they're blood deficient and because the blood has moved out of that area. So, and the funny thing is, sometimes all that blood is collected in the upper back. And so there's this extreme blood stasis and blood not moving in the in the upper back and the lower back it's just gone i'm not completely gone but there's definitely a, a big difference so i'll start trying to move that blood from the upper back to the lower back which sounds a little crazy but by using the hua chu jiao g points in the upper back and then some of the ub points the small intestine points laterally and putting some heat in the, on there and then going in and doing tui na um, after about 20 minutes of the acupuncture and then finding any hyper irritated bands which I, I usually will find and you know just isolating those and going into the belly at that point very very uh, slowly and gently and letting that gently disperse and then doing a little tui na can really not only help the upper back tremendously but then start getting that blood to move down to the lower and this is why moxib starts become, becoming very very important in our practice as well and and even some some cupping to try to pull it up and then pull it down and so using that kind of idea and i haven't found any book that talks about doing that but again i don't think that you know in ancient china we had paratroopers so you know i think that we can can really take these concepts and and start thinking about how to apply them to the whole body in a in a in a very different way so in terms of of acupuncture initially I might avoid the low back if if I see or you know if there's an indication of this blood leaving the vessels and focus on needling in the, in the top and some heat and some moxa and then pulling it down and then of course after a while I can do acupuncture but you know again herbs become very important and I think in our medicine when we're talking about pain acupuncture is iconic and we have and the public has this idea, I'm going to go in and see an acupuncturist. But often, acupuncture, A, may not be what they need, or, you know, B, it might be, you know, very different modalities than, than they need. So, you know, I, I think for our public perception, we need to start updating acupuncture and start saying Chinese medicine, maybe, or acupuncture Chinese medicine. Because we really aren't just doing acupuncture, we're doing a plethora of modalities. And even if the practitioner isn't really, you know, trained or comfortable with herbs, no problem whatsoever. Um, moxa is is not difficult to integrate. 
and there's a lot of CEU classes that focus on MOXA. Um, so I think our practitioners who know acupuncture can easily learn and, and adapt with a MOXA as well. And, and I don't know, you know, to what point we've stressed the importance of using MOXA in not only painful conditions, but the painful conditions with these comorbidities. Right. What kind of MOXA do you like to use? What do you find yourself doing in your practice? Well, um, I I use pole MOXA, I use thread MOXA, and I like using the loose MOXA on the, on the needles. And then in terms of that fluid pathology we were talking about, when, you know, when there's a digestion, most of my patients always have a digestive issue, whether it's, you know, pain or depression or anxiety or autoimmune, always digestion. So I like using MOXA hats um, or these, these MOXA platforms that really get the whole digestive uh, system warmed up. And so Susan Robodeau had explained to me um, how to use a, a MOXA hat. And that's almost like a chef's hat that's put on the belly and there's a little bit of salt. And then one might use like an abalone shell with the MOXA in there of the lot uh, of, of loose MOXA. And actually the MOXA would be lit outside in the shell. And once it all kinds of burns and it's, it's, it's fuming, if you will, then brought back in and put on top of that salt that's laid inside of this uh, MOXA hat, if you will. But I've also seen other devices where there's, you know, we've seen MOXA boxes that we mm -hmm. can move around. And so um, I, I love using MOXA on the abdomen. Yeah, that, I mean, that sounds delicious. I'm, it's a cold day. As we're recording this, it's a cold day where I live. And the thought of warm salt and MOXA, that just, that sounds really delicious. I'm curious, some of us have trouble with MOXA smoke, or we work in places that doesn't really allow for MOXA. What are your thoughts about using a TDP lamp in place of the MOXA? How do you see them as being similar or different? Well, yeah, definitely. I think heat in general is important, however you can get it. And I love the heat lamps. Uh, and I think the heat lamps with the infrared really drives the heat down, uh, much like the MOXA does. So I think that where MOXA is nice is I can focus it on one area. Uh, for instance, if there's a numb part of the body, I can lay a piece of thin ginger and put some loose MOXA on there and light it up. But it's difficult to, to have that level of concentration with a big, huge lamp. But in general, um, I'm, I'm a fan, and I usually use two lamps on people in the upper and, and the lower, not just to keep them warm, but often um, to really focus in those muscles. And I think that MOXA and or the ADP lamps can be a treatment in itself. Well, in Japan, there's places where they, they just do MOXA. They're family traditions. You go in and get yourself MOXA'd up. So, yeah, it's, it, it's a wonderful modality. I, I find myself wanting to ask you about PTSD, but I'm also aware of our time today. So what I'd, what I'd like to do, instead of asking you about that, is suggest that perhaps sometime in the future we could sit down and do another show and jump into that because my suspicion is you've got a lot to say. I do, and certainly yeah. I'd be glad to. That, that sounds great. 
Jennifer, anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wind it down here for today? Certainly. For those of you who are interested in working with the, the VA, working with the veterans and or soldiers, and are anticipating working in a hospital or an integrated environment, I encourage you to get your CAQH updated. And that's that third-party verification of all of your credentials and licensure. If you're not familiar with it, get familiar. Okay, we'll have we'll have a link to it. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll have a link to that. Um, and then also you can go to the uh, jobs dot. Um, well, I'll I'll send the link to the military to the federal job site, and you can actually start building up your resume in there. So. Let's say that you know you happen to be online and you see a job opening that you want or you hear about it. You can already have all of your resume all already integrated into that system. Um, there's this knowledge-based information that requires paragraphs of information. You might as well go ahead and go in there when, in your free time and just have that ready. Great advice. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today, and I look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, me too, Michael, and thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.